0: I was like, well, that's what happens is sometimes bands push into a new place with their music, and that's okay. Yeah.
1: Hello, and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. My guest for this episode is the talented Roz Raskin, who you know from bands such as The Rice Cakes and Nova One. In our conversation, we talk about learning piano at an early age and what they've done to develop their voice, the importance of building a solid local following as a musician, and their approach to songwriting. Hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, please follow along on Instagram and Facebook, at livingroomutb, for photos, show flyers, album artwork, and more from Roz's time in music. What was your introduction to music? Uh, From what I understand you started playing piano at a pretty young age, correct?
0: Yeah, so I I started playing piano when I was five. Uh, My Mm -hmm. dad is a musician. He plays uh, piano and saxophone and clarinet. And so he uh, was very encouraging of me and my brother to be learning music from a young age. And we had this very sweet man. Uh, Mr. Oliveira, was our piano teacher. He was yeah. also in his eighties and was, I think probably struggling mentally in uh, a lot of ways with maybe some dementia and things like that. Uh, oh, okay. But he was a very sweet man. He used to fall asleep during my lessons, but he was also oh, very really? nice. And <laughs> yeah. he was also very, very kind and smart. And I actually did, you know, I learned a lot from him, um, but I was so shy. So I remember this one time in particular, he fell asleep and I didn't really know what to do. So I just sort of sat there for the 15 and minutes <laughs> and waited for the time to be over. <laughs>
1: yeah, funny.
0: I didn't want to wake him up, you know, it was like, he's, you know, this older man here. He needs some rest. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And where were you, where did you take your lessons? So Um. he,
0: so he came to our house and I, I, I grew up on the Providence Pawtucket line. So right in that little area over there. And he was teaching some other kids in the neighborhood. He kind of taught, he taught us, the fundamentals. There's some very mm-hmm. old piano techniques and very traditional classical techniques. Uh, and then when I got into middle school, that's when my dad pivoted and took us out of those lessons and kind of started teaching us himself. And we were doing okay. a lot of jazz and kind of rock and roll type of stuff. And yep. around that same time period, I, tr- I started playing guitar in school a little bit. So in, in about sixth grade, I was playing some guitar. And then I was also joining a jazz combo when I was in seventh grade and did all state jazz in, in middle school. And then I did senior all state in high school too. So I was in jazz bands all through middle school and high school.
1: Yeah. And what were you listening to at home? Or what were your parents listening to? Um, like,
0: was what was jazz? I?
1: was it everything or?
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, seventh grade, Roz was listening to Avril Lavigne.
1: Yeah,
0: and J- all right. And, and
1: J-Lo. Uh,
0: <laughs> and then also like Thelonious Monk and Herbie uh, yeah. Hancock, you know? Um, yeah. So, uh, and I was a big fan of Lauryn Hill always. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, so it was, you know, because we were doing all these jazz standards in this jazz band I was in. Greg Takamoto was our instructor. And he was just this really down-to-earth, sweet amazing person, um, who really treated us like adults. Um, and so playing in that band really felt very similar to playing in a band in my adult years, just
2: Mm -hmm.
0: very, uh, uh, organic and, um, kind and mindful. And so I learned a lot about playing with other people in that process, which ended up, you know, again, transferring to the other kinds of original music I made later on.
1: Yeah. When did you start playing out, like playing your own music?
0: Uh, So I started playing out. Technically, we were playing out in that jazz band uh, in high school. Mm -hmm. And then I started to organize booking my own shows with my solo music when I was about 17, 16, 17. And then I was playing in an alternative band at the time, too. Um, And so we were playing. that That band was called Sean Waters and Group Think.
2: Oh, okay. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. And uh so I was the youngest member of that band. Everybody in the band was at least like 22 and I was like 17.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh And it was a wild ride.
2: <laughs> um, Why do you say that?
0: Um, I mean, just, you know, like a bunch of guys in their 20s pretty much and okay. me. So they're all, you know, in their party years and all that stuff. And I was like just figuring out what that all meant at that yep. time. And, you know, was playing a gig late night and then going to take my SATs in the morning, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so, yeah, so I, so some of the early gigs I played were like at the living room, RIP. Yeah. Um, and, and then I started to organize, yeah, my own shows. So I was playing at a lot of cafes because back then there weren't that many places that folks um, under 18 or under 21 could play in the city. yeah. yeah. So I played like Cafe Zog was hosting shows or just like allowing people to play in the space. So I played there. Yeah. I played at the old Ben and Jerry's that was on Angel Street. Um, oh. I, th- I think that was Angel Street um, in Providence, like right off of Thayer Street. And so we would just pack out those places. So I would get oh, cool. all of my high school friends to come there. And in retrospect, I actually was thinking about this recently, the people at Ben and Jerry's had it made because they, w- they wouldn't pay me but they would allow wow. me to play there and I would bring like sometimes like 80 people out and they would like, you know, be selling a ton of ice cream and I was too young to like really get that. I probably yeah. could have been paid, you know, or yeah. should have been so, paid. yeah,
1: been, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and they were like, Oh yeah, keep playing like every Friday, yeah. if you want to, you know what I mean? Like let's fill this place up. <laughs> that sounds great to me. Yeah, um,
1: And you were just excited. Like I'm playing in front of 80 people. This is great. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah and they were so, so sweet. Um, to me so they were you know it was always always very kind the way that they interacted with me and with um, the people I was playing with but uh, it's like damn yo people need to advocate for themselves because sometimes people just won't give you what you deserve you know yeah Um, so uh, so yeah so those are some of the early gigs that I played in um, in Providence yeah when I was um, in later high school and
1: yeah and were you playing a lot with, uh, with Groupthink? Was that a busy band?
0: Uh, you know, that band was a mess, but I, we did play around a good amount, but I think something that, so many of the guys in that band I loved so, so much, but I think in general, the band struggled with a path of how to right. how to move in the world as a band
1: yeah. um
0: and i and i and i ultimately had to leave the band because it wasn't really speaking to where i wanted to be as a musician because my main focus was i thought it was really important to have a good local base a good local fan base yeah and there were very few people in the band that wanted to actively pursue that in a way that was like really taking it to the streets. Like at that time you could fly her for shows and people would come,
1: yeah, you know? Yeah, like hitting up their street and Wicked Inn and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Right, so I was like bringing more people out to these little solo shows that I was playing than the shows that this other band was playing. And I wasn't mm-hmm. getting nearly enough of a voice in that project anyway.
1: Yeah, um, Is, were you playing uh, keyboards in that
0: band? Yeah, I was playing keyboards yeah, like, and doing backup vocals and, okay. and writing a lot of the melodies and things like that. Um yeah. So then I, so when I got out of classical high school, I went to classical uh, and I was in the jazz band there too, that my, actually my dad led, Um, Alan Raskin, amazing guy. I love my dad. And then I I thought I was going to go to New York for school to SUNY Purchase. And I was sort of on the track to do that. And I was hoping to uh, try to enter the music conservatory there. And then I ended up pivoting yet again and I decided to go to Rick because I was really excited about the music scene in Providence and I wanted to see where that would take me and I wasn't like feeling super excited about leaving there was something that was feeling like I needed to stay yeah okay so then I went to Rhode Island College and and then that's when I quit groupthink and then I went full throttle with Roz Raskin and then in 2000 I think 2008 2009 era that's that's when uh, it became Roz Raskin and the Rice Cakes which later yep. became the Rice Cakes which later <laughs> became Roz and the Rice Cakes
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's that's the progression yeah yeah
3: <laughs>
0: um and it really I think the saddest part about that band for me and I love that band so so much is that we on the, on the internet, on the streaming sites, there is Roz Raskin and the Rice Cakes, the Rice Cakes, and Roz and the Rice Cakes, so you can't they're all, necessarily they're all find- separate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's hard to gather all the material. If you yeah,
1: know. yeah. That's um, funny. Yeah. How did, how did that band come about? The Rice Cakes, meeting, you know? Like so,
0: that? yeah, so I, I ended up taking the bass player from Group Think with me, he mm-hmm. was he was excited about the same stuff I was excited about. Um, Johnny Cairo, really great yep. guy, amazing bass player. So he was the original bass player, and then Casey Belial, who was the um, the one and only drummer in the Rice Cakes. Um, he and yep. I met at Rick, um, and I mean something I have to say about that school is I met some of the most incredible people I've ever met in my life there. Are people that I'm still yeah. very close to, a lot of like my main community or people that I met there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: so he was playing around in different bands and stuff and yeah. he was met. An
1: fourteen foot one, right?
0: Yeah, he still is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Such an amazing drummer. Like I play drums as well, and he is just nuts, you know. So um like what oh he did with, with your recordings, but yeah, fourteen foot one is an amazing amazing band. So but yeah, quick shout out to that. So <laughs> Yes,
0: please. Well well so I actually so a side note, I actually so he and I met briefly at rick and then we played a show together where i was playing as roz raskin with johnny he and i would do this little duo thing okay and and then casey's <clears throat> band 14 foot one they yep. were playing too and so it was my first time seeing them play It just was this small festival that was happening at firehouse 13 when it was firehouse uh, yeah, yeah. 13. yep and it was it was around I forget how long Firehouse had been around at that point as a venue, but it was still pretty young um, in terms of like putting on shows and stuff. And so I saw Casey play and I saw them play and I was like blown away.
2: Yeah. So completely
0: blown away. And I had this little CD that I had made called the Ecotones that I made in high school that I sold around my high school. And I, I was in the talent show in my high school. I won my talent show at Classical. Yeah, and uh, and I, you know, I was just kind of hawking my CDs around, and I still yeah, yeah. had that. And I was a freshman at Rick, and Casey was a sophomore. And and I and I came up to him after the show and was like, "Hey, listen, here's my CD. Like, if you're ever interested in jamming, I would love to play with you. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, your band is so sick. You're so sick. You know." And then I didn't really expect to hear from him, and I think that we were on like a vacation or something at that time, and we exchanged numbers, and then. I randomly got a text from him like around Christmas vacation time being like, Hey, I'm with my girlfriend. We're on like a road trip somewhere and we're listening to your CD and I love it so much. And I would really love to get together and jam. That sounds so fun.
2: Yeah.
0: So we had one practice and that was it. We just were, we were going. And then we got a gig. Someone asked us to play a show at the living room. So we just very quickly named the band Roz Raskin and the Rice Cakes.
1: Yeah. Where did that come from? Was it, uh, was there a lot of thought to it or was it? Uh...
0: We were eating a lot of rice cakes.
1: Ah, all right. <laughs> <but we budget. laughs> nice. I love rice cakes too. So it's perfect. Uh...
0: Lightly salted rice cakes. You go cakes. with that?
1: All right. See, I yeah. can go with the sweet ones too, like the caramel ones or.
0: Yeah. Delicious. Ones,
1: I guess, but yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for a that good... sidebar about our dietary, you know, we've been in quarantine and we're just you know, consumed by snacks, you know? So. Yeah
0: hey you know what rice cakes you really can't go wrong with the flavors it's just such a classic base that you can elevate as much as you want with flavor yeah so
1: (laughs) (laughs) that should be like the next like boutique thing how it's been like boutique donuts and cupcakes now there's going to be you know like (laughs) high-end rice cakes with you know some sort of drizzles on there or something. I don't know. Whatever.
0: Well, well, yeah. and you know, there are in in so many Asian cultures, there are rice cakes that are like legitimate rice cakes. You know, that are like really delicious like as patties. well.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we actually we did at one show that we played at Firehouse at some point. We did do a situation where we had two friends of ours walk around with rice cakes, and we had toppings for people to put. Ah. <laughs> you know, we had snacks available yeah. at the show. <laughs> branding (laughs) Um, there you go yeah so uh yeah rice cakes it was a pretty casual name and then you know what's so funny about like this moment right now in music and art and culture is it's kind of like anything goes in this really amazing way that didn't really it didn't feel that way when we were a band so when mm-hmm. we when we were first starting out in providence there was there was definitely certain communities that we fit into but it generally felt like the, at the time a lot of the music that was popular was being made by cis white men i mean that's still i think very much the way the world runs i think it's changing a lot mm-hmm. but uh, you know at the time it's like if you weren't like a noise band or an americana band or like a post hardcore band. Yeah. There, there weren't that many bands in Providence that had women in them. There weren't yep. that many bands that publicly had queer people in them, out queer people in them. Mm-hmm. So the music scene has changed so much. Yeah, um, great, and yeah. So at that time, I, I remember, you know, reaching out to people, asking to play shows. And in retrospect, we were probably super rough around the edges. AKA we were definitely rough around the edges. So like maybe we didn't even sound that great at that time. I think we ended up sounding a lot better, you know, like hopefully anybody would over time. Um, But we got a lot of no answers for bookings of all, you know, different places with different bands and things like that, or, you know, or casual kind of people pushing us aside type of thing, which was fine, you know, I think it helps you grow character Mm -hmm. as a band. But I remember having a conversation with Casey, and then our later bass player, who, which was still very early on the project, like two years into the project, Justin Foster joined, who is another incredible human. Yeah, um,
2: yeah.
0: He, uh, he joined the band and then it just was very clear that we needed to cut out our own part of the scene because there wasn't really any music that was being made like what we were making. So we went really hard into like building our own scene and it worked for us you know
1: yeah how would you say that you did that was it like again getting back to like booking your own shows or did you find a yeah that i was accepted or
0: yeah yeah well i feel like um i mean a few different ways i think firehouse ended up being a really great venue for us because they allowed us to book our own shows yeah and lizzie who was booking there at the time who now books the pvd fest um okay she is amazing um she you know saw how interested i was in putting on good shows and so Mm -hmm. she uh she was very helpful in helping me book things there and then i would book my own bills and we would just promote the heck out of those things yeah and we would and during during the height of the band you know we were selling out shows in providence and that is something that i feel like we really worked hard on i'm proud of you know um And especially just making kind of weirdo pop. And again, like the city just didn't have much of that. So we could have easily just let that get to us and then stopped making. Um, But um, it really felt like, yeah, we really gathered around each other. And we're like, we want to make this a band. We want to keep making this music. And we did a lot of self-recordings where Casey and Justin were, doing a lot of recording for us in our, in our studio, all self-produced. And then, and then later we got into more studio stuff and, um, we recorded at a place called Salvation Recording Company in New York. And then also Mm -hmm. at the Columbus theater. And then, um, our last record, we made a big, nice studio in, um, Lincoln, Rhode Island.
1: Yeah. Okay. And that's where you've done a lot of your recording now these days, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is just, they're the best.
1: Yeah, how would you describe the experience recording at Big Nice? You know, like uh, obviously it's a, a comfortable spot for you now. So,
0: yeah. Um, well, so Brad, who uh, who owns the studio, he is also in Fourteen Foot One. He's one yeah. of the guitar players in Fourteen Foot One. So I've known him for years, and uh, um, through Casey, and then like through Fourteen Foot One, and. Mm-hmm. Um, And so when he was starting up that space and he ended up uh, hiring someone named James Parker, who now plays in Nova one with me, um, as the, as the second engineer there. So when they were starting to get that space going and Casey knew that it was starting and we were trying to figure out a place to do this next record. Casey was like, listen, I think we should really go down and check out this space and see what it looks like and see what it feels like and have a meeting with Brad and check the whole thing out. And so we went down there and it's, I mean, just right by the water, I, Yeah, just like such a down to earth rad space. I mean, it really is just like a kitschy name because, you know, uh, I feel like humble folks in there, um, sweeties in there, Um, but with, you know, that work really well with the gear that they have and the space that they have and are just pumping out some amazing recordings um, that have a lot of heart and a lot of soul. Yeah. Uh, and so we had a first meeting there and they were still putting the studio together pretty much when we made Devotion, <coughs> which was the last record that we made together.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so we made it over that summer and it was a blast. It was just, yeah, Brad and Shames together, uh, I think, worked really well. And yeah. It was, it was just a really wonderful experience all around. I think Roz and the Rice Cakes really at that time, Casey and Justin and I were writing really well together and we're working Mm -hmm. really well together. Um, Maybe the best we ever had. Uh, It definitely felt like, in my opinion, it felt like the easiest process we'd had in making a record. Uh, And... So I really feel like when the band when we went on hiatus, it was a high note for us because we were yeah. all getting along very well, and also I think had made what I considered to be like a really beautiful record that was very much a representation of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I so I feel I feel really excited that the last record that we made together was made in that space. Uh, with just such like good intention and good feels.
1: Yeah, it, it is. it's a fantastic record. Um, oh, you know, thanks. You know, one thing, how would you say like your songwriting has evolved over over time? Has there been a lot of like thought behind that or
0: I think that for me, it really became this idea of honing in on songs like being really specific about choices in songs, not for the sake of pizzazz or Mm -hmm. uh, even like showy instrumentation. I feel like early on, a lot of us were like the three of us were just people that had been ripping in bands forever. Like we both just played, I mean, the three of us played super hard. So, you know, some of the, Early shows that we were playing in basements and um like on tour we you know play in these wild basements um, and a lot of the vibe was also we were a party band, so mm-hmm. we so we would just be like you know playing super fast and playing funky time signatures, and I'd be like screaming my head off, and you know that there was an extra element of live. Like we had people moshing at shows you know sometimes and yeah. crowd surfing and things like that so that was that was the nature of the music so when so if you think about that period of time and then when a record like devotion came out and i remember showing it to my dad and him being like wait so can people dance to this because you know the other stuff people could dance to yeah so like what does that look like now and i was like well that's what happens is sometimes bands push into a new place with their music and that's okay. Um, and you know, we might lose some people, but hopefully people will be able to follow that progression, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think, so, so something I remember talking really specifically about with Casey and Justin about that record was just how to make the record as song focused as possible. So, I actually like to think that Justin was really mainly, in some ways, a producer on the record. He uh, like took a big step back from writing specific bass parts to things and was more like I would be bringing songs and then he would be helping to arrange things okay. that were happening and bring in and out elements. Yeah. Uh, Casey also started writing more um, on that record. He was progressively writing more and more throughout the project, Justin yeah. too. Um, and on Devotion, we did more of like duo vocals together. Um, Casey would be singing lead on some parts, more harmonizing. Uh, but I, w- I would say that that record feels more minimal to me. And that's also where I ended up going with Nova 1. Because mm-hmm. actually when when Devotion was finished being written around that same time, towards the end of that, I had this chunk of songs that I didn't really know what to do with because they weren't fitting specifically with the rice cakes and i knew that they belonged in like another realm but i wasn't really sure where to put them yet so i didn't even have like a name for the project specifically when i made the songs okay um so there's that i'm just realizing that now i don't think that the band specifically had a name yeah yeah but yeah, so I would say like that to me is what is what part of the progression was and I'm I'm trying to go back to your question here, but um I feel like the simplicity was something that ended up being more important to me over time um and okay. just being super intentional about parts, intentional about lyrics, intentional okay. about dynamics, uh just approaching things with as much intention as possible so that everything really feels like it's there for a reason. There's like true purpose and meaning behind everything almost to like, almost too much so in some cases, but I love to hone in on that stuff now.
1: Yeah, okay. How did you uh, feel like working at other studios? Like, I mean, you mentioned Columbus and you worked at Machines, or have they just mastered stuff there? Have you recorded there?
0: Yeah, so, so so, Machines mastered uh, a record that we did at uh, the Columbus, Need oh, okay. to Feed. Uh, yeah, yeah um, Seth and Keith, and um, Keith uh, was, yeah, so wonderful to work with. He's great. Yeah, yeah. I love those guys so much. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I could say all sorts of things about different recording experiences I've had, and I've had a lot of them. I've actually, you know done various little projects and little studios or sat in on things with people or whatever Um, and I I feel like the thing for me as a musician is uh, having worked in a lot of spaces that felt particularly uh, toxic in that there's a lot of engineers I think in the world that want to produce more than they say that they do And so, and, and I also think that at the same time, there are a lot of bands that don't know what they want. So, you know, I take responsibility in that I feel like a lot of the time growing up when I was recording in different spaces, I didn't really know how to vocalize what it was that I wanted and needed from a specific studio. So you go into a studio, you're paying them, you're like, hey, please record my music if yeah, you're interested yeah. in recording my music or in some cases, even if they're not interested, they'll record it anyway, cause they're trying to make some money, whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I think that for me, I really needed to grow, uh, to use my voice in a way mm-hmm. that, that really uh, was being true to who I was and who I am. So I think a lot of my struggle with studios over the years and almost like I think something that put a bad taste in my mouth about studios at different points throughout the years was really feeling like I was working with the wrong people. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was also times when, like, for example, as a band in the rice cakes, we were not all on the same page and we would be in a studio space where there'd be too many cooks in the kitchen and we'd all be trying to sort out what it is that we're trying to make. And everyone has their own idea about what it is that we're trying to make. You know, so I guess what I'm saying is, is in in talking about uh, engineers and band members and and different musicians, it's really more about uh, yeah folks being able to hone in on what they want to get out of a given experience. Mm-hmm. So I think something that was really helpful with the devotion record was not only was our band on the same page about what it was that we were making, but we also knew the right ways to communicate that to the studio. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that I can just think about so many different times over the years when I didn't have a really clear idea of what those things were. So, and it's so easy to have a studio space become a really toxic environment Uh, Without you even realizing it because you're stuck in the space for hours And you're trying to make the thing to the best of your ability But sometimes you're just not in a really great place to be making but you're in there. Anyway, you're paying for the time, you know, so um, And then I feel like with the Nova one stuff that was uh, you know, even more of an experience for me to be able to I You know, I came to Brad and I said hey listen, I've got this side project And I have these tunes that I have a very clear vision for, and I'm not looking for anyone to produce. I'm Mm -hmm. looking to like self-produce and, you know, have you help me find the right gear and get the best recordings that you can. I'm looking for someone to engineer a good record for me, you know, and he said, I'm super into it. And then in that experience by day two, I said, how do you feel right now about doing more producing? So we were able to have chats within the experience, but very clear, that like now I think it's appropriate for you to help to fulfill this role.
1: WBRU is a big part of the Rhode Island music scene. It was a big part. I, I grew up uh, outside of Rhode Island, um, but I still would listen to it a lot. And so I apologize for bringing this stuff up if it's like, you know, bringing no. up, uh, uh, rock hunt stuff, but you're my first <laughs> rock hunt winner that I'm talking to. Um, so just kind of wanted to talk quickly just about that experience of, uh, you know, going through that and, and winning it and what it was like on the other side.
0: You know, the funny thing about the rock hunt, oh my gosh, you know, I'm honestly, I'm loving that you're bringing up the rock hunt right now. I think that is, that's a, that's a great, that's a great piece, um, of my memory that I feel, uh, open to digging into for sure. Um, so we, I had considered the rock hunt a a bunch of different times. My dad was in the rock hunt, I think in like the early nineties or something.
2: Okay.
0: He competed in it. Um, and what was really great about us entering was that it wasn't a big deal to us at the time. I figured we wouldn't get in. And I also, because we just had, we are, are always the band, we were always the band that lost the Battle of the Bands. Okay. We, we came in second on a, probably a handful of Battle of the Bands. Yeah. Um, never never the first and so so we just (laughs) so we just always figured that it was just a it's a crapshoot it's totally subjective it's like you know who really wins those things you know um and so we entered it and then we got into the first round and what was actually the funniest part about it was we had a bunch of tour plans so we weren't even sure if we were going to be able to like fully compete because it was okay what was nice about when we entered was that we, it was really just one tiny piece of where we were at as a band. We were touring a ton, we were recording a ton. It was like, oh, if this happens to happen, great. But if mm-hmm. it doesn't, great, you know? And I always thought that it was really interesting that so many bands that I'd seen that entered those things, they were playing one show and it was The Rock Hunt, you know, and, <laughs> and we were, cause you know, cause it's like such a local band thing. yeah. Um, yeah. And at that time we were a touring band really more yeah. so than, than we were playing in Providence. So we had, you know, that show on our schedule and then we had like another 25 shows that we were playing, you know, down to Austin or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, so it was nice to not have all of our eggs in one basket. It was sort of like, if this thing happens, cool. Um, and then we ended up making it to the last round and then we ended up winning. And it was just this like really funny experience where I just remember winning it and being like, I can't believe we won. I can't (laughs) believe of all of of all battle the bands that this is the one that we win.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, and it was huge for us. It was, I mean, I think especially because we already had so much going on, we were already such a high functioning band. Like we were really trying to make it what we were doing.
1: Um,
0: that it was super beneficial. So we were being played on the radio as much as anything else was. So, um, it was a huge leap for us as a band in terms of just like getting the word out there about our shows and about our music. And we had two singles that were playing on there for a whole year. Like, it yeah. was, you know, they would have Pearl Jam on and then it would be like Roz and the Rice Cakes, Yellow Fields, Ros and the Rice <laughs> Cakes, Magma, you know. So we were, I think what's so interesting about music is people all of a sudden will see you in a different light if you're already if you're in a tier with like other people even if we're not real like we're clearly not pearl jam you know what i'm saying but yeah yeah. but like even hearing us involved in these other bands that people think of as like untouchable yeah like elevated our career at that time yeah yeah uh at least locally you know well really only locally i would say Um, but it was really great for local shows that we were playing around here. Those are probably some of the wildest shows that we played We're around that period of time. Um,
2: cool.
0: And yeah, and, and BRU was super sweet to us. And I think that we originally thought that BRU was, I, I feel like in, in the community in Providence, I think that for a long time, BRU was seen as um, something that had gone completely corporate and it was completely... Uh, detached from the local scene
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um, because they barely played any local music you know yeah and then actually Wendell who ended up becoming the director there he was a huge advocate for they had like a local thing at nine o'clock pretty much every night during the week he was the advocate for really making sure that they um, involved more local bands and opening for larger acts and things like that when they were coming through Providence and Actually, at that time, he was saying to us that we were a band that really opened up the actual competition to welcoming more Providence bands to join because so many bands thought that they were so lame for so long that we were kind of like, we had won this thing and we were part of the bigger local scene. So people were like, well, maybe I'll try out next year, you know?
2: I got you. Yeah.
0: Um... So, uh, so yeah, and and they also, you know, that they gave you a pretty cool photo shoot. You know, they jammed that show. Um, our show, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but our show was supposed to be an outdoor show. You know, in in, in downtown Providence. Like after you yep. win, you you headline a show, and our show was rained out. So, so what they did was at the time, Whiskey Republic was the plan B. But the problem with the Whiskey Republic is that venue really theoretically probably fit three or 400 people. And yeah. so we were all nervous because we were like, is anyone gonna know where the show is? Because it was supposed to be clearly like in the same place it is every year for multiple shows in yeah. um, Water Place Park, you know? Yeah. Um, and so we went down to the radio station and we did like an interview before the show to get people excited and to see where they were at and if they were moving it and yada, yada, yada. It was like, everything was like hour by hour. <laughs> um, and I said, you know, I'm so nervous. Is anyone gonna, get, gonna come to the show? And, and Wendell was like, Roz, you should not be nervous about if people are gonna come. It's whether or not people can fit in the venue because we're expecting over 2000 people regardless of what happens. So we ended up playing the whiskey and there was like at least a hundred people outside of the venue that were just outside listening while they like jammed in, I don't even know how many people <laughs> inside the venue.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so that show was absolute insanity. And we also had our dads play. So my dad played sax on a song. Um, Casey's dad plays percussion. So he played some percussion, Johnny Bongos. and then, um, awesome. And then Jack Foster played drums. Um, which is Justin's dad.
1: That's really cool. Wow.
0: So that was a fun show. So yeah, we had, a, I mean, I have, to be honest, nothing but really positive things to say about BRU. They were, even after, even like the years after, they were super encouraging to us and they'd yeah. bring us in and to talk about our different releases and they would have us on the radio giving off, you know, away tickets. And um, yeah, it was surprisingly, you know, to me, like as I, I was a kid that loved BRU, and yeah. then was a person that was like, maybe BRU's lame. And then I was like, BRU's awesome. You know, like it, it came it became that later once I realized how much Wendell had invested in the local yeah. music community. You know.
1: Yeah. No, I mean I had a very similar experience. I listened to it a lot, and it, but there was that transition where it kind of moved away from the college radio kind of station to the more um, just playing what was around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and 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 also something that I thought was really interesting that I didn't realize until I was talking to Wendell about it in the space was there were so many complaints from people like the music that's played on BRU is so shitty, like, why are they playing all the shitty music all the time and the same songs over and over again? And he's like, we get requests for Jeremy, like we get requests for these songs, we get requests. Everything you hear on the radio for the yeah. most part is requests. People in your state are calling to hear the Red Hot Chili Peppers over and over again. Yeah. They're calling and, and, and they want to hear Imagine Dragons and they want to hear this, that, and the other thing. Like, we're not pulling this stuff out of thin air. Like, we're taking requests and we're playing things that people want to hear, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, like, I'm sorry that you're bummed that people in your community want to hear this stuff, but, like, we're trying to play what people want to hear. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And I was like, damn, that's true. And, like, yeah. You know, if you really want to hear that song by that more obscure band, call yeah. and, you know, and request the song or whatever. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't realize that they were taking that many requests that that was like such a big part of their
1: no programming. I was th- yeah, I was thinking it was like airheads or something like that, you know right, <laughs> but- <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: and 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 yeah. i I think probably to some extent it was like that it was kind of in and out, depending yeah. on who was directing the station, but while yeah. he was there, he really tried to make it be like we want to play what people want to be hearing here
1: cool, but yeah, let's get into some of your your newer stuff and talk about nova one and yeah like how how that kind of came about sure,
0: yeah, um. So, yes, I I gave you some of the origins of just how the songs got recorded. So some of the songs were written, and that was just something that happened to exist simultaneously with the Rice Cakes had made our record, and we put out that record with Team Love Records. Mm -hmm. And that that felt good to put that out, and we did a tour on that. That was really fun. Um, But I was creatively feeling really mixed about Mm -hmm. the project, and so much of it was... Uh, so much of that band was directed by me in a lot of ways over the years artistically and um, and I was feeling uh, tired and I wasn't sure really where to bring anything next and I didn't want to grow resentful of that and not knowing where to move to next yeah Um, so that ultimately was what led me to pausing on that project and bringing that idea up um and then but then at the same time it kind of felt like there was two worlds that were happening the same time because it wasn't really so much i want to end the rice cakes in order to start nova one Uh it was really more you know if in in an ideal world if i had been feeling more in a creative place that i could have balanced two projects in that way it would have been great to continue the rice cakes, but it also felt like maybe we had, we just needed to pause. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So then I sent off those recordings that I made at big, nice studio to community records. Uh, and that, that conversation originally started because I was thinking about even starting my own tiny label, just something that was mm-hmm. putting out tapes sometimes or, like really limited seven inches or something along like, along those lines. Yep. And I had made some kind of social media post about it and Greg from Community Records, who we knew from playing in New Orleans, and he yep. had he had, a, he had the label there for a long time. Uh, he commented and said like, seriously, if you wanna start a label, I think you'd be good at it. And if you ever wanna talk about it, like feel free to hit me up. Yeah. So I was like, oh my gosh, cool, yes. I, I would love to chat. So we got on the phone. And we were talking a lot about it. And then I also said, just as a complete side note, you know, I have this set of six songs. Would you be interested in checking it out? It's a side project to Roz and the Rice Cakes, just my solo stuff. And he was like, yeah, send it on over. I'd love to take a listen. And then the next day he was like, yo, what's going on with this? Can we put this out? And I was like, what? Yeah, (laughs) that sounds cool yeah so it just it was like the right place the right time and they were uh-huh. really interested in putting it out and putting it on on out on vinyl and so that's how that whole thing came to be and then throughout that year I was really visualizing more of the components of what that band was and um, yeah now we all play in costume which is really fun and um, and the band is in some ways a collective of musicians and that there's nobody really that's officially in Nova One, but also like everybody's in Nova one um oh, okay. but there's that there's like about nine different people I think that have played in the band at this point in Providence, and people yeah. kind of step in and step out and actually Casey has been one of our main drummers um since the beginning um and he also played on secret Princess and he also yeah. played on on the most recent record um lovable and james also played drums on lovable too and brad sat in on a few tunes too brad krieger from big nice yeah and uh yeah and then i played um yeah, some bass guitar and sang and yeah on the on the new stuff and i actually did play drums on one song on secret princess on the song your girl i played drums on that cool it's actually what the one song i can say that i played everything on
1: yeah that's awesome Which was fun. Yeah, I uh, envy anyone that can play all of those instruments. You know, like, I was trying to, like, describe, like, what a bass line should be once, and I could not do it. They're like, why don't you just play it? I'm like, I can't play it. I'm, like, hitting a string, and it doesn't sound anything what I'm trying to do. And so it doesn't go both ways in my experience you know i think over
0: the years i really learned through playing with so many wonderful players i mean really casey and justin being just two of the most wonderful people i've ever played music with not only Mm -hmm. just as people but just exceptional musicians um that I learned a lot about drums, and I learned a lot about bass through playing with them. So, okay. so I played like I I, I played bass in Roz and the Rice Cakes on a few tunes, um, and I I didn't play really drums at that time. Although we would sometimes, um, we would do like some really late jam sessions where I would play drums and Justin would play keys and Casey would play bass. <laughs> we would we'd get pretty wild with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I. Uh, but so I think I got braver in terms of visualizing what it was that I wanted. So like during the Nova one sessions, I was, it was the first time that I was thinking to myself, I know what I want from the mm-hmm. drums. And so I was able to direct Casey and he and I, he and I had a phone call where I said, Hey, listen, I really want you to sit in on these sessions if you're interested, but you know, I would love it for us to find, for us to find a way to communicate that's different than it was in the rice cakes. Like I'm gonna pay you to do the session and I want things to be played in the way that I'm seeing in my head. Um, Like are you down to be directed? but then also be giving it your flavor at the same time, but really yeah. being super tasteful specifically for what I'm envisioning for these songs. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I know what you're saying and let's do it. And it's been that way since the beginning. He's just been so incredibly wonderful to work with because he's like a metronome, you know, and he's got yeah. so much finesse and he makes the simplest parts just sound so rich and dope he's
1: yeah,
0: yeah fabulous
1: he's great yeah
0: yeah um, you know you've seen 14 foot one
1: <laughs> um i guess since we're kind of talking about instruments and stuff like that um you have a amazing voice um
0: oh thanks james uh,
1: it's uh yeah i mean it's up there with just some of the top people um but did you take any vocal lessons? Have you trained that and like, have you trained in any way for singing? Like, or is it more of a natural thing for you?
0: I am a bedroom vocalist Okay. Uh, for sure. I feel like I, early on, somewhere early on in elementary school, I sang for a friend of mine that told me I had a bad singing voice. It took many years for me to uh, get my wits about me to really sing in front of other people. And yeah. I spent years just singing into a cassette player in my room, just really trying to hone my own voice on my own.
2: Yeah.
0: And then I also had the privilege of singing with some amazing singers through middle school and through high school, just friends of mine that were also really into music. So my friend Lily Kendall, she and I would uh, sing on all sorts of tunes that we were either writing together or doing covers, um, in middle school. And then when I was in high school, I sang a lot with with my friend Lucy Packard and she and I would be doing Lauren Hill covers. We did some Pixies covers. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then that's when I really learned how to harmonize was Uh during those periods of time with those two particular singers. We just would spend hours feeling the goosebumps you feel from harmonizing and really getting the pitches right. You know? Yeah. So I definitely feel like, uh, like when i when I hear old recordings now of myself, what's really interesting is I can tell what I was trying to do, like what uh, i was yeah. what I was working on, and I feel like something that I have discovered more so in the past few years is really where the strengths of my voice lie, because our voices are so multifaceted. there's so many ways that you can work your particular style of singing, and it couldn't really i mean there's so many people like i can even think this is so such a random thought right now but someone like steven tyler like early aerosmith to later aerosmith sounds like a completely different singer in some ways you know um and so i feel like as as we grow our voices develop and you're able Mm -hmm. to hear things that you didn't hear before or you know I feel like for me my approach changed like I didn't like yelling I didn't like Mm -hmm. screaming I there was times when it felt like I just was using my voice in ways that were really just the only thing was really accomplishing was sort of like an American Idol moment you know what I'm saying and like "Ah!" (laughs) you know just like unnecessary (laughs) use of a voice that almost felt like abusive to my voice just for the sake of you know
1: just trying to go to that limit or whatever
0: yeah 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 yeah. pushing the boundaries of everything really um and so i think when i when i started making that last record with the rice cakes at big nice that was really when i changed my approach to how i wanted to sing yeah and I think that had a had a lot to do with the miking, and also with my miking versus my headphone mix and what I was hearing. Um, and so I feel I feel great about the vocals on that record. And then I feel like they got better on Secret Princess. And I think that I'm the most proud of the most recent vocals I did on um, Lovable.
1: Yeah, your voice sounds great on all, on everything there. So
0: thanks, thanks. I'm, I mean, it's definitely years and years of honing in on stuff and just grinding it out and um and i feel like i wish looking back i mean hey no regrets 2020 but i do wish that a younger version of myself had taken more time to be more purposeful in the things that i was doing um and yeah i feel grateful that i didn't rip through my voice in a way that hurt it because i easily could have hurt my voice in a lot of the ways that I was using it and um, I've become a lot more careful with the way I use my voice now.
1: to talk about your connection to Riot how did you connect with them and and, um, what are you doing with them now
0: so I'm on the board of directors there and I've been on the board for I think it's my this is my third year and I've been volunteering there so the organization is what 11 years old so I've been I've been volunteering there for like nine or ten years um, yeah and I I first played a luncheon performance there because they have these really cute lunch performances during the day where they bring in local artists to come and play for campers. Oh, okay. So, so Hillary Jones, the founder, invited yep. me in to do that. And then I was like, what is this world? Because, you know, again, as I was saying to you at the time, I so much of what I knew from the Providence music scene was a lot of dudes. Yep. and I And so when I walked into this space and I was surrounded by women trans and non-binary people i was like what is this magical land that i Mm -hmm. have you stumbled upon like i'm so psyched that hillary asked me to come and be here and then she was telling me how they were trying to get the keyboard program started there and asked me if i wanted to uh volunteer to teach keyboards and i was just starting to teach more around that time. So it was perfect for me. So I started to teach there and then I started, and then I was also beginning my teaching practice outside of that. And I worked at a few different music schools too, but, um, uh, yeah, so I have taught keyboard there for many years. Um, and that was my first major involvement. And then a few years ago, Hillary got in touch with me about joining the board. So then a lot more of my focus has been around that, uh, the past few years, and I am just so excited about the name change, yep. the organization as a whole has made some huge, huge steps in becoming way more inclusive. There's mm-hmm. a whole anti-oppression committee that is just surrounding the best ways to support all folks that are a part of our programming, that volunteer, that are on the board, and um, making sure that um, we're you know deeply, deeply doing anti- anti-racist work in um, actually supporting the population that's involved in our programming, you know? Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, I'm thrilled. And we also have two new co-directors, Denise and Ricky, that are a dream team and they are fabulous. And right now we're going through it, you know, I mean, as everybody's going through it, I forgot during this conversation, James, that there's a pandemic going on. So I appreciate yeah. the conversation because I, Have momentarily forgot about the pandemic. Yeah. Um, Good. good, good. uh, (laughs) But now we're back um, to
1: it. We were talking about 2012 and BRU, and now I know. I know another period
0: (laughs) of time. Um. But yeah, So we're you know we're trying to do some fundraising right now to really gather as much funding we can around keeping the organization afloat during this really Uh difficult time because right now you know like so many other places. nonprofits and local businesses were temporarily closed to make sure that we're curbing the virus as much as possible.
2: Yeah.
0: So yeah, um, just really just trying to do what we can right now to keep the organization moving and grooving, you know, and Uh continue the work. The youth are just so amazing. The new space we have, which is right across from classical high school, uh, is incredible. It's much bigger than our other space that we had. It's right behind Nice Slice. Uh, and can you imagine if that place had existed there when I was at classical? <laughs> right.
1: Yeah.
0: I went to new urban arts in high school, which is an amazing program. Um, okay. yeah. but, uh, but yeah, that whole block, you know, with R- Ramosas there, youth pride is there. There's, uh, that whole educational block yeah. is rad. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's my, my current involvement is I'm on the board there
1: cool um yeah how are you i guess you know we're talking via zoom right now it's my first remote interview for this podcast but uh how um i guess you know twofold like how is riot handling with their uh, online teaching and you as well like how have you adapted to that you know in that professional sense but also as a performer has it been going okay has it been
0: yeah I mean it's definitely uh, gosh, you know I think so many folks are speaking out about how how grateful we feel for the live music scene, right It's you know there's so many like memes about jokes about trying to get people to come to shows and people you know yeah. it's just I think we're all feeling uh, like we wish we had all the things that were so easily accessible before, you know yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that so as of right now like the big thing that we're doing at riot is we're offering gear loan so you dropping instruments to people's homes to um, offer them a way to be learning an instrument while they're home while they're in quarantine and then we're also doing we're offering the packets that we normally would use for instrument instruction during the camps and programming we're offering people to access those on the internet and then um i actually would need to check in with them about how the remote learning is going. Um, but I heard from one person that it's going okay. Um, okay. and I think that some of the, some of the things that can be tough about remote learning and, you know, obviously our entire education system is feeling this right now is being able to navigate so many kids in one space. Yeah. And this is something that we do constantly at girls rock as we teach large groups. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, I've taught huge groups of kids. I've taught individual groups of kids, smaller groups. I think at Girls Rock, the most that I've taught at once was nine, Uh, nine young people I taught at at one time. And then there's also been times when I literally taught one person or two people, you know? Uh Um, And then my lessons are all private instruction. So for me, I am loving remote teaching for a lot of different reasons. I think that, um, yeah there's you know people really do become much more self-sufficient um i think with this way of learning it really does require people to be listening in this special way Uh, Uh i we got this lag going on you know we have to make sure like things will cut out sometimes you have to make sure that you're very much in the moment and you're really listening to what people are saying and uh, me and the other person yeah and then, uh, and then I also feel like it's a nice way for me to be super duper organized. So like I'm sending people emails at the end of the day to make sure it's really clear what we're working on. And then we also have some, I have some shared folders with my students that I'm able to gather all the things that we're gonna work on next time or that we're currently working on or if you have ideas of songs you wanna be working on or if you wanna uh, be editing a file of a song that you're writing, like we can see those things anytime I log in, I can see the extra work that you did on that project. Or, okay. So I think in those ways, I, I'm actually surprised that I hadn't done that sooner, uh, just mm-hmm. with my in-person lessons, just to have a more of a digital space to exist for all the materials. So I think that those are some assets to remote teaching that I'm feeling right now. And yeah, I think we're all just gonna learn a heck of a lot more about the internet <laughs>
1: yeah, in yeah. This
0: experience.
1: You did a live stream with Nova 1 recently how was how was that experience um like was it a successful experience for you
0: Yeah I would say so yeah we I uh, yeah we had a bunch of people watching on there it was very fun it was bizarre to just finish yeah. playing you know we played like something like 10 songs or something and to just be like and that was another song so <laughs> you know yeah. to to nobody um, yeah. and then to just like see people silently commenting on this thing and like just such lovely little words of encouragement. And, um, and we also, we, for that particular stream, we shared the proceeds of that people donated between us and this organization called Amore, which -hmm. is doing really amazing work in the community right now surrounding the pandemic and people that have temporarily lost work or, you know, potentially their businesses have closed and trying to get the necessities to people during tough times. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was nice to be able to not only play a show to make sure that, you know, I'm able to, um, sustain the band, but also to help sustain the community. Yeah. Too. uh, but so I think we're going to do another one soon. I'm trying to figure out what that's going to look like. I think it would be fun to do some themed streams. Like I, we we were starting to work on a Dolly Parton cover set.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Early, earlier this year mm-hmm. that ended up having to, uh, be postponed, uh but i would love to be able to do a dolly parton themed stream
1: that'd be great yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: so yeah nice. it's it's been interesting and it's been i uh, it's definitely taken some getting used to and yeah our whole tour has been postponed for what was supposed to be essentially all of may we were going to be on the road and doing a bunch of shows to promote the new record and that's not happening so yeah. Yeah, it's, we're all adapting and it's, yeah. you know, and I think that uh, the toughest thing right now is, you know, we're a part-time touring band and, you know, I would love for us to be a full-time touring band at some point, uh, but for the bands that are touring full-time, I think this is particularly just such a tough moment for, you know, this is for people that are not, you know, I, I have, have the privilege of that. I always knew that I needed some kind of plan B because yeah. it was not the primarily you know like because touring was not a huge money maker, but we, it was it was sustaining us yeah. um, and there were times that it was that it was more of a financial benefit to be on tour than not, but as of right now, you know, I can lean back into teaching uh, and yeah. for bands that have just been touring, it's such a tough hit because it's how people are making their money,
1: yeah, yeah plus everyone that's kind of connected with it you know if you're a light technician or a roadie for the band you know it's like you're not even the have the publishing rights that you know you might still be getting some money from streams or whatever else people can listen to like if you're not you know setting up drums for the you know as a drum tech then you're not getting paid and it's yeah it's a really rough thing for so many people so
0: yeah well said like people that are session players people that are booking agents yeah. um oh yeah there's so many I think sometimes people Ripple forget Island. there's yeah for sure there's so many jobs that make there's such a big team that makes any given band exist the way that it is you know exists like d i y is always really just d i t doing yeah. it all together, you know yeah um so you know any any of your favorite bands out there uh yeah, there's a whole bunch of people that are working on making that band what it is, so yeah. Yeah, it definitely, there's some unsung heroes behind the scenes uh, that are propping up all these projects that definitely need to be paid and, you know, uh, yeah, Yeah. it's a tough time for the music industry, 100%.
1: Yeah. You know, I I did want to ask, you know, as we kind of wrap stuff up, uh, what would you say is your greatest music accomplishment?
0: Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) my, my greatest musical accomplishment. I would say this is maybe sounds like a simple thing, but I think is such an important thing to me is really anytime I get a message from someone saying something like, Hey, this song or this album or your music really speaks to me. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, or this helped me through something, or I really connect to this piece of music in this way, or when people are singing words at shows and things like that, I think that yeah. those moments feel like the biggest musical accomplishments to me because ultimately I'm in this thing because I wanna commit, I, I mean, uh, not commit, I wanna connect. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I am committed. I am committed, yeah. <laughs> um, But I, but I wanna connect to people. Yeah, And, you know, even when we were early on touring and stuff like that, I was really more excited about going to see my friends that I met in Asheville or my friends that I met in wherever the hell. I was more excited about that sometimes than I was about the show that we were playing that night. So, Yeah, Yeah. yeah, so to me, I feel like my my greatest musical accomplishment is really those types of moments. I mean, there's definitely like a bunch of really notable shows that we've played that I feel excited about, but I think that uh, ultimately, like the biggest feeling of gratification is moments when um, you feel like the right people that are like really understanding what it is you're doing are, are voicing that to you.
1: Yeah. So is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about or?
0: You know, I think, I think your questions have been exceptionally thoughtful and I, uh, I just appreciate you having me on and I think this is such a wonderful time for a program like this to exist that you're highlighting different artists in the community. So thank you and I, I think you've done a great job.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that, um, uh, it means a lot. Thank you so much, Ross.